Hi, I'm Bernard Leung, and you may know me as the executive who believes that very few startups deserve venture capital. And in my spare time, I want to know how VCs are thinking about Southeast Asia. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business technology and media in Asia. And today, I have Justin Hall, partner from Golden Gate Ventures in Southeast Asia. Welcome, Justin, on Analyze Asia for the very first time. Thank you for having me. And you're based in Singapore, right? Based in Singapore, yeah. I've been living here for the last eight years. Mm. I have seen a lot of the articles that you've written on the region, and I think you have a pretty interesting career moving from, I think you started as an associate in Golden Gate Ventures, and subsequently you got promoted to a partner. So I want to start off with the conversation by getting to know you better. How did you start your career? Okay, that's an interesting question because there's a lot to unpack there. So I would say that I was one of the few people, at least in, in Southeast Asia, who started my career in a totally different origin point. So I originally came to Singapore to do public policy. So I was accepted to a scholarship at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. And when I was there, I had taken it upon myself to focus more on entrepreneurship policy. Now, what had been occurring at the time is Mayor Bloomberg of New York City, where I originally come from, where I was born and raised, he was rolling out some pretty intriguing entrepreneurship policies at the time to foster startups, to help facilitate entrepreneurship. And I thought that there's no other better place to learn that than in Singapore. And as I continued my studies, as I tried to understand how Singapore became what it was, Um, especially when it came to rolling out really progressive economic and uh, entrepreneurship policies. I needed to do research. I had Googled top VCs in Singapore at the time. I came up with a few names. Some of those names still exist today. Golden Gate was top of the list because Vinny, partner at Golden Gate, he's adamant on having and continuing to have good SEO for this site. I emailed him, wanted to ask him some interview questions when we met. After our chat, he said, do you want to, you know, intern at Golden Gate? This was all the way back in, I would say, late 2011, early 2012. And I said, sure, I'd love to join. And the rest is history. I joined as an intern May of 2012, and I've been with the company ever since. And that is a very long-winded but different story than I think most people talk about when they talk about how they got into VC. I think during the course of you getting from public policy to being a venture capitalist, you also have gone through the Kaufman program as well, right? Yes, yes. And does that help you in terms of building your network? Like for example, managing LPs and doing all the different things? So the Kaufman network, I can't say enough positive things about it. The network is extremely strong. The critical questions that they have Kaufman attendees ask, they are not what I would say your typical questions of what you would expect for a program for VCs. It's not about how do you draft a term sheet? How do you source deals? It's not really about that. It's more about understanding your own strengths, your own weaknesses as an individual and applying them correctly to venture capital. Beyond that, the funds that they bring in, the people that they bring in, it's best in class. So it's been extremely helpful for me. It's been extremely helpful for the fund as well, because not only am I a Kaufman Fellow, but Vinny and Michael Lentz, the other partner, are also Kaufman Fellows. And in fact, I think some of the other very prominent venture capitalists in Southeast Asia are also Kaufman Fellows, as far as I understand it. Yeah, I mean, we have Jinglan from Insignia. We have Amit from Jungle, Hien from Open Space. There's Nick Nash, who's doing his own fund. I think after San Francisco, I believe either Singapore or Israel have the highest density of Kaufman Fellows per capita. Wow, I didn't know that. 
and you hear it here first. So I want to ask you this, in your career journey, what are the interesting life lessons you can share with my audience? Ooh, that's also, there's a lot to unpack there. So I, I think I'm kind of blessed to be in this industry. This is not an easy industry to break into. And I try to help as many people as possible who ask me questions like, how did you get in? What have you learned? And I think the biggest takeaway that I've had entering this space is you have to be as intellectually curious and open as possible. I think hubris and arrogance has destroyed more value for LPs and GPs in VC than any other cause. And I think if VCs approach startups very open, very transparent, very intellectually curious, they don't go in as if they know the answer. They go in with the intention to learn what the answer might be. I think that is a huge lesson that I've learned just as I've kind of entered this industry eight years ago and I've continued to evolve. Some of the best entrepreneurs, they know their space. They know their industry better than anybody else. When I approach them, I'm not approaching them with the intention to tell them what they are doing is right or wrong. My intention is to actively listen, to understand the problems that they're experiencing, to understand the successes that they've had, and maybe figure out if there's an opportunity to work together in some small way. I think when you are in this industry, if you are the smartest person in the room, I don't think you've surrounded yourself by very good entrepreneurs. Like, I want to be humbled. I want to speak to people that make me feel like an idiot. And fortunately, we've invested in a lot of entrepreneurs that make me feel that way, that make Vinny feel stupid, that make Jeff feel like he doesn't know what he's talking about. And those are actually the best people to invest in. So I love to do that. I love being open and meeting people that make me feel like, oh, there's a lot more in this world to understand and, and learn about, but it can be just extremely humbling, it can be very difficult, it can be sometimes painful to deal with, but it's probably the biggest takeaway of this industry. Just like surround yourself with people that are much smarter than you because those are the people that are going to be the most successful. You just have to be okay with that. So we come to the main subject of the day, Golden Gate Ventures and your perspectives on Southeast Asia. And we have some discussion before we had this podcast. So I have interviewed Jeff and Vinny at the very early stages of the Analyze Asia podcast. And I thank them very much for their support. In fact, I think Vinny was the one who gave me the right growth hack to get my guests back on the show again. So I'm going to ask you to introduce Golden Gate Ventures to the audience again. Sure. So Golden Gate Ventures is in the early stage. Here's a fund based in Singapore, but investing across Southeast Asia. We are one of the largest, oldest funds perhaps in the region right now. We've recently closed our third fund, $100 million fund, Vintage 2018. And we are now raising, funnily enough, our first growth fund to be a minimum $200 million fund. So we'll be one of the few funds with a VC arm as well as a growth funding arm. We lean towards B2C. I think that's within the DNA of the founders. Founders are all entrepreneurs coming from a very consumer-oriented background. So we love looking at and investing in marketplaces, financial services, logistics, payments, anything that is directly or indirectly associated with B2C within Southeast Asia, that's what we're interested in. Our remit has also expanded. Originally, we were, you know, for Fund One, which was less than 10 million, we were looking primarily at, I would say, the core countries in Southeast Asia. But as the fund has gotten larger, as our team has grown larger, we're looking at places like Hong Kong, Taiwan. We made our first investment into Bangladesh. We're looking at investments in even places like Pakistan and Australia, New Zealand. So things have evolved. And... Fortunately, the team has stuck with it. Portfolio has grown and we're continuing to invest pretty aggressively across the region. 
So I know you are there at the very start. So how has the fund evolved since you started as an associate and now as a partner? I mean, you can also talk about some of the successful startups that Golden Gate Ventures have invested in because I think that will do justice to a lot of what you guys have been doing so far. Sure. I would say our evolution mimics much of the evolution of the region as well as other funds in Singapore and Indonesia. I think the biggest evolution is how the entire industry is professionalizing. And that's a loaded term because it implies that the industry before was not professional. But I think before when you know your vintage 2011, 2012 funds, these were, for all intents and purposes, early stage startups that were being run by one to perhaps two partners. Very small, very limited resources. They were hacking things together just as much as they were appearing to make things work. Whereas now, five, six, seven, eight years later, not only these funds are larger, but there's more expertise in the industry. So you have people with the right backgrounds. You have specialists that are coming on board. You have the growth of this new phenomenon in Southeast Asia of portfolio services, something you know that you typically see of an Andreessen Horowitz or a first round or Google Ventures. Now you're starting to see the same thing here where you have funds that are bringing in portfolio services and providing CTOs or recruiters or growth marketers to their own portfolio companies. And this is across the board, like LP reporting, GPLP relationships, how we orchestrate sales and exits. VCs across the region are becoming much more professional than they were five, six years ago, which is great. It's great for LPs. It's great for entrepreneurs. It's great for the GPs and the funds themselves. So I think the reason for a lot of that has been just because there's a huge amount of capital that has been flowing into the region, perhaps not as fast as China and India. I personally think that's a good thing, but there's been so much money coming in that forced the funds to get larger. And if you get larger, you have to be much more professional. So I think that's what we're starting to see. In terms of the investments that we've made, some of the more prominent ones, Codapay, Hitban, Carousel is one of the larger ones. We made an investment very early on into Redmart, and that's just out of Fund One. We Definitely have a predilection for those consumer deals. Those consumer deals, interestingly enough, also have changed form. Before, you know, from the first fund, it was primarily e-commerce. So we invested in a lot of e-commerce. Out of fund two, we started investing in a lot of financial services because that's also how the industry and the region has changed. You went from e-commerce, wanting to pay for things online, to financial services, being able to pay for things online, or being able to transact or get financial services or take loans, et cetera, et cetera. That's where the industry was trending towards around Fund 2, and that's what we started to invest in under Fund 2. So that's why we invested in companies like Experts, Funding Societies, Zendit, things that allowed the facilitation of money moving on and offline. We focused on that. So really, how this industry has evolved, the funds have evolved as well. And we're just following suit. So I want to ask you now, what's your current role in Golden Gate Ventures as a partner? So right now, I'm, I'm partner at Golden Gate. And really, that just means anything and everything. So myself and Jeff, we probably manage 90% of the incoming deal flow. So it's either Jeff or myself that's that first touch for the entrepreneur, where the entrepreneur will approach Jeff. If Jeff likes them, he'll pass them to me or vice versa. They'll approach me first. If I like them, I'll pass them on to Jeff. We'll have to both simultaneously like them, give our kind of thumbs up approval. If we approve, then it's upgraded to the IC. It's discussed there. And if the IC wants to move forward, then we'll take a deep dive into the commercial duty. They'll speak to the other partners. We'll start doing customer and partner reference checks, so on and so forth. That's just on the deal flow side. If anyone knows Golden Gate, they'll know that we are a somewhat eclectic fund where we'll do 
a lot of outreach. We'll do a lot of events. We'll do some off the beaten trail kind of partnerships and events, I would say. And so I'm also involved in that more on a reactive side. I think we're starting to bring on specialists that can do that full time. But again, the partners are doing anything and everything. For me, I'm much more on the deal sourcing side. Mm. I'm pretty curious about decisions in investment committees. So I always hear Reid Hoffman from Greylock Ventures always like to talk about that they only do a deal on a startup when the partners disagree with each other very vehemently. That means it has to break both the votes to 50-50 and that's the kind of startups they looked at. So in your case of investment committee, how do you all think about that process? Is it has to be a collective agreement or do you have to look for certain specific traits that people don't think about? So the way that we've operated to date has been consensus, where all the partners must agree whether or not this deal should go forward. To date, that has worked well for us. I do understand where Reid Hoffman is coming from. And partly, I believe the reasoning, and we talked about this at Kaufman, is it's the deals that invoke the most amount of conflict that will generate the highest alpha if they do well. They will generate the highest returns if they do well. And it makes sense, right? Because if I think this company is going to do extremely, extremely, extremely well, that this is a moonshot, there's just as much risk associated with those deals. And I should get a significant amount of pushback as a result of that. So I think that's where he's coming from. For us, I think it's very important that we operate as a group, that we have consensus. When the decision to invest is finally made, up until that point, though, we have had arguments, we have had fights, we have had deals rejected by other partners on the IC because we just didn't think it made sense. And ultimately, it swayed the other partner to say, fine, I can see to the majority opinion here. I think we have to be mindful of groupthink, but when there's no groupthink and there's a lot of trust, I think we can have these heated arguments and we can push these deals forward on the IC side towards a consensus that everyone can get behind. Mm. This is my favorite question to all VCs and it's going to be branded as the Analyze Asia question. What's a typical day like for you as a venture capitalist? I really wish there was a typical day and I wonder if if other VCs have said the same and I'm sure they have. I would say most of my day is comprised of deal sourcing. Right, So it'll either be me doing outbound work, me taking inbound, i.e. meeting entrepreneurs either face-to-face or over the phone, doing research, competitive landscapes, working with our interns and analysts to determine you know, who the competitors are, total adjustable markets, doing that kind of basic due diligence and managing that. I would say the most important work is getting into the nitty-gritty with some of our portfolio companies, especially those that I sit on the board of. And then... So that would comprise maybe 70, 80% of my work. 20% is going to be that random, either the last minute fires and emergencies that a partner or a board member needs to put out and needs to deal with right now. It could be those quote unquote extracurricular events that Golden Gate tends to do and we do well. And at least one or two partners will get involved in that. For example, we're doing a summit in Vietnam next week. And that's been taking up the bandwidth of many of the partners and many of the people at Golden Gate. So a good chunk of our time can be taken up just by doing that. But I would say for me and for Jeff, a majority of our work is just deal sourcing and just deal flow. Mm. I think whenever people ask me, why do I like to ask the question? It's because I really want to make them understand that a VC's job is not just sit and listen to pitches. 
and do nothing because there's a lot more going into it, like providing the services, providing the thinking, and also try to work out trends that you might want to invest in that particular category as well. So maybe the question I should switch down is what are the industry verticals now that you're most excited about in the VC space lately within the region? Sure. I was at Facebook yesterday and I was talking to some of the executives there about this. Probably the most interesting industry right now is logistics. And I think logistics is going to take in a vast amount of capital over the next three to four years. So around 2015, a few years back, you started like this golden age of financial services where the largest lenders in the region today, they started around 2014, 2015. You know, these are consumer lending startups, business lending, invoice financing, et cetera, et cetera. That generated a ton of investment back then. I think the emergence of logistics startups today is going to facilitate 10x more investment over the next three, four, five years. And so, I mean, we're looking at that. I know many other funds are investing very aggressively into that space. And if you take a step back, it makes sense, right? I mean, again, as I touched on it before, but Southeast Asia has evolved. In the beginning, you had e-commerce, so people wanting to buy things online. Then that led into financial services, being able to pay for things online. And now that reaches the third point, just expecting products, whether the origin country is Indonesia or China or the United States, products ordered online should reach your door. And you should have faith in that. And that means that you, like overland freight is sufficiently resourced. Air freight, customs, marketplace logistics, route optimization, that there are so many components to logistics that requires advanced solutions, a lot of capital, a lot of resources to make work. And across the entire region of Southeast Asia, which consists of tens of thousands of islands, very diverse countries, different types of inequalities of infrastructure. It's just hugely complex. So it's much more complex than financial services was when it first emerged back in 2014, 2015. And I think so many, so many funds are pouring money into this and so many really great entrepreneurs and startups are emerging as a result now. This is interesting to me because I came from the e-commerce logistics space. So I think probably you need to maybe have a little bit more thinking about which part of the logistics. I think you clearly have brought out things like freight. There's a lot of excitement over there. But if you come to, say, last mile delivery, if you think about regions like China, even today in Southeast Asia, in China, I think the average cost per delivery is only about less than 1.2 RMB, which divide by five is about 0.2 US cents for my audience out there. The cost per delivery for the last mile, I guess there isn't really any more innovation because ultimately everything in delivery is about going from point A to point B, right? Mm -hmm. My question about investing in logistics, uh, and I find this is one of the things maybe being in the industry, I've given a lot of thought and even done some of the interesting deals for Singpost. After I'm part of the team that did the $300 million investment from Alibaba into Singpost. I guess the question is that given that some parts of the logistics chain is already commoditized, where are the opportunities? And I think maybe what I'm really asking in this question is probably is to elaborate the opportunities in that space. Sure. So it's uh, certainly a good point. And when I say logistics, last mile delivery certainly comprises part of the logistics. And I actually, I don't see too much investment going into that space anymore or that sub vertical anymore, simply because as you rightly pointed out, it is becoming very, very commoditized now. You have a lot of different players that are trying to do that. And it's just a race to the bottom, especially when it comes to servicing and paying for that. 
And I think that's a space that many VCs are trying to avoid right now. Where we do see opportunities is in these large fundamental business models. So, for example, logistics marketplaces. Something as simple as intermediating between trucks and trucking fleets and shippers is a very mission-critical issue right now that only a small amount of startups are really starting to tackle. Again, this is a fundamental issue. Just being able to have shippers create a bid to ship a product from end to end within a country and having three to four or five different quotes for that job and to be fulfilled in a reasonably quick and at an affordable rate. These things don't really exist yet. For the logistics side, at least on this kind of overland freight marketplace, it's extremely fragmented. There's very little transparency. Shippers can't compete for the best price because there are so many trucks. There's so many fleets out there. Many of these jobs don't get fulfilled. If they do get fulfilled, the trips themselves are uneconomical because, for example, a truck would go out, deliver, and then it would come back empty. It's an underutilized resource, essentially. And so you have many platforms that are emerging now, especially in Indonesia, in Thailand, in Malaysia, that are trying to tackle this issue. And it is hugely valuable. There's a lot of value that's going to be unlocked by simply applying these, in my mind and in the mind of many of these entrepreneurs, these very basic, fundamental technologies that will completely disrupt how this industry has previously performed and functioned. Mm. Any other industry verticals other than logistics? So another one that we're really starting to see now is agent-enabled economic activity. And economic activity is broad because I've seen many different types of agent-enabled activity to date. So I'm seeing agents that are selling perishable and non-perishable goods. I'm seeing agents selling financial services, things like loans or insurance. I'm seeing agents that are able to sell electronics, clothes, retail products. So when I say agent People sometimes get confused because, you know, they think that a Tokopedia store or Carousel or Shopee store, those are agents. Those are mom and pop stores that sit on these platforms and they generate a lot of economic activity that way. I'm thinking of agents as an outbound resource, agents that represent a retailer, that represent a brand, and they are selling or they are evangelizing on their behalf and they're able to do so through their mobile phone or through desktop, or through web. And we're seeing many of these companies starting to emerge now across many different product types that it feels like it's going to be a critical trend, that this is something that's going to last for the next three, four, or five years. So I'm seeing companies, especially in Indonesia, that are starting to focus on this. So they recruit either students or stay-at-home parents, predominantly young mothers, who don't have a primary source of income, but they do have these platforms that allow them to sell to their neighbors or sell to their village or sell to, you know, the storefront owner that they go to. And this kind of democratization of economic activity is an intriguing trend that we've invested in now. And I expect many other VCs to invest in for the foreseeable future. What do you look for in a startup team when you invest in that, given that you and Jeff are really at the beginning of the funnel, looking at all the deals coming in? So I'll try to avoid the very boilerplate answers and try to answer something kind of different. I like to invest in entrepreneurs that have a chip on their shoulder, that they're angry. And I don't mean angry in like a cursing, just belligerent, antagonistic sort of way. I'm talking about entrepreneurs who are fundamentally offended by what's happening in their selected industry. Like something is so wrong and they are so pissed off by it that they 
have to fix it. Either that or they have a chip on their shoulder about someone or something that occurred to them in the previous life. This could have been something that they grew up with or something that they experienced in high school or college. It doesn't even have to be about their industry. They're pissed off about something, whether it's their industry or whether it's their personal life or something. And they're taking that energy, they're taking that willfulness and they're applying it to their startup. Some of the best entrepreneurs that we invest in, they're angry about something. They have a chip on their shoulder. They will not fail as a result. They simply can't give up. And it's a really interesting point. It's a really interesting quality. It's hard to suss that out. I think many VCs, whether they know it or not, they try to determine whether or not this is an entrepreneur that's going to stick it out. And they ask many different questions. They try to prod, they try to gauge emotionally, psychologically, whether or not this entrepreneur is equipped with that kind of profile. I really try to be sensitive to that. I try to understand what the emotional and psychological motivations are of the entrepreneur that I'm speaking to, because that counts just as much as the total adjustable market, what the unit economics are, how they make money. What genuinely motivates the entrepreneur, that's what interests me, because it goes into the deeper part of their psyche. And more importantly, it's a much better motivator than money. Jeff and I have a rule of thumb where if I, and I hope I'm not revealing too much, but if I'm speaking to a founder and I say, all right, why are you in this space? That's always my first question. Why are you doing this? And they say, oh, because the market is good. Or because I, you know, I saw another company exit for $500 million, et cetera, et cetera. Those are awful reasons to start a startup because that means you're motivated purely by the financial returns, which means that you're always undergoing this kind of almost cynical analysis of what you're doing, where if you think another opportunity comes up that will generate more return for you than what you're doing now, you're going to drop it immediately and you're just going to do the new thing. I want to avoid investing in entrepreneurs like that. I want to invest in entrepreneurs who are dead set on fixing this because of X, Y, Z, because that is, that is going to keep you there, not simply the money. Mm. That's probably true. I think it's usually it's pretty revealing. It doesn't really need a lot of proding, just basically the way how they think about valuations and how do they start comparing between them and here in the region. One interesting thing that I am pretty curious about because we're kind of at the tail end of the first institutional funding cycle for Southeast Asia funds. And now I think all the major VC funds in the region like yours have already second and third rounds of funding. Yep. How has the VC scene changed since you first started? I mean, you talk about the professionalization. I mean, there must be a lot more deeper things have gone into the work within the venture capital space itself. Sure. So professionalization is one thing. The biggest change, and some of the listeners might find this a little funny, is the entire industry has gotten much faster, much more aggressive, and much less cooperative at least at the fund side, the GP side. And I think a lot of that has simply to do, again, you have a lot of money that's coming in. That money is going to chase after the best possible deals, which has resulted in much quicker turnarounds for term sheets and much less cooperative funds. I think in your vintage 2012, your 2011, 2012 funds, you had funds that were you know, on paper, they should be competitive, but they were much more cooperative. They would do these syndicated rounds where, you know, funds that were our ostensibly competitors, they were gladly working with one another to invest in startups. I don't think you are seeing the same thing, especially within the same class or the same maturity of stage. You don't typically see Series A funds co-investing alongside one another on equal terms. You're starting to see more 
funds from different stages co-investing with one another. That is much more common now than it used to be. So for example, you'll see maybe a seed fund leading a deal, but making space for a series A, you know, a small allocation for them with the expectation that when the company raises a series A, that series A fund that's involved on the cap table, they'll be able to raise that. So you kind of have this very clear, steady progression. So those are some of the things that we've seen, how the VC industry has changed. The biggest thing really in my mind is speed. Just things have gotten so much faster. I think before you had entrepreneurs that were willing to wait two, three, four weeks for a term sheet. If they are a good entrepreneur, that entrepreneur can get a term sheet within two to three days and can sign it within three to four days. I've seen that. And if you're a good entrepreneur, you can demand quite a bit from VCs in the region and VCs will more or less accept it. Because again, there's a lot of money here, but I don't think there's a proportionate number of investable startups. How do you find the concept of signaling risk? I mean, I'm beginning to see that only certain companies with certain groups of VCs is kind of having a stamp on them. Like you will have like the usual names, the first five names plus X number of VC firms and one leading. Do you find that that type of signaling risk is also starting to happen within a VC circle? It's a good question. Yes, I think signaling risk is always there. I think good funds need to be extremely sensitive to it and they need to understand how to market themselves and market their portfolio companies to deal with the optics, whether positive or negative. Uh, I don't think that there is really an easy answer for something like that. And I think many funds, including ourselves, would be wary to share too much on it simply because it can reveal so much. Yeah, so I will say that signaling is a significant issue and there's no solution for it. It's just something that both entrepreneurs and funds have to deal with, but it does exist. I have to say your answer is very thoughtful because I think just merely thinking about it, I don't think that there's a solution from any point of view, but I think it is generally prudent that the VCs are actually thinking about it. So that comes to another question. How does the infrastructure within the Southeast Asia market has changed from your opinion? Does it enable more or less startup activity? I want to exclude Singapore for a change because I think that the most interesting parts of the deal flows are actually coming outside of Singapore rather within Singapore. So when you say infrastructure, that could mean a lot. It could mean digital payment infrastructure. It could be doing to logistic infrastructure. I mean, my good friend Smitty from Seed Plus is always complaining about the traffic in Jakarta. So, you know, now I think there is a direct transit from the airport into the city, right? So does that actually enable more startup activity or less? Yeah, so funnily enough, maybe this might be a somewhat controversial answer, but I think the infrastructure enables more startup activity and it's twofold. So one, I think entrepreneurs always see opportunity. And if there is a failure in infrastructure, that means some services, some products are not being rendered or rendered economically or rendered efficiently and an entrepreneur sees an opportunity to mitigate that. For example, you said, You said traffic is an issue. Traffic is an issue all over Southeast Asia. But just, you know, next week I'm speaking to an entrepreneur who started a startup that facilitates helicopter flights from local airports into city centers. And they've set up helipads and they set up areas to drop off and pick up passengers in the city center for a reasonably affordable price. Certainly cheaper than the time cost of waiting in traffic for three to four hours, which is pretty common. So in terms of those opportunities that these issues create, I think 
entrepreneurs are going to be there to take advantage of it. So I actually think that is a boon towards startup activity. The other point that I want to make is that I think when it comes to these issues, local entrepreneurs understand those local issues, understand those local pain points better than anybody else. So it creates almost like a defensible moat for them where, for example, in the Philippines, I see a few B2B regulatory or reg tech startups. Regulations there, regulations across Southeast Asia are extremely complex for things like hiring, for filing taxes, for company incorporation. Those issues, I don't necessarily see them really improving over time. I see them as always being very bureaucratized, very difficult, very inefficient. And again, I see those local startups understanding those problems better than anybody else and creating startups to take advantage of that. The one issue I do have with these things is that many of these are problems that will be rectified. For example, Indonesia is building a subway to connect end-to-end in Jakarta, including the airport into the city center. Many of these problems, while they exist now, they may not exist in the future. So I do think that depending on the problem that you select, depending on the issue that you choose to resolve, they may not be issues in the future, which could obviously put a limiting factor on the growth and scale of your startup. But I think in the beginning, especially if you're choosing the right space, especially if you're choosing the right problem, I actually think the infrastructure can definitely enable more startup activity. Recently in the past, probably two to three years, there's been strong interest from tech giants, not just from the US, but also from China, now in Southeast Asia. So when you look at startups and venture capital from that perspective, and with all these tech giants, you interface with them, right? They will bring opportunities as well. Where do you see that opportunities really being? This answer might seem like a cop-out, but I think the biggest, the biggest strength of Southeast Asia right now is its potential upside. We speak to a lot of LPs. We speak to a lot of investors about the opportunity in Southeast Asia. And for us, the biggest talking point has been, look at what Southeast Asia has achieved in the last eight years. And again, you know, if you look at the industry and the ecosystem back in 2010 and you compare it to now, it's not just an order of magnitude different. It's orders of magnitude different. We've gone through like critical inflection points, like two, three, four, where you've seen an explosion of funding or an explosion of activity, explosion in unicorn funding, et cetera, et cetera. So many of these paradigm shifts that have defined and redefined the opportunity in Southeast Asia. And the really intriguing part is that we have not even seen the full potential yet. Like all of this activity has been in Singapore and Indonesia, but what about the Philippines? What about Vietnam? What about Thailand and Malaysia? We have, you know, I think around 15 unicorns now, and that happened in the space of eight years with a relatively modest amount of financing, right? Like we definitely don't have the same number of funds as the United States. We don't even have a fraction of the number of funds or capital available to us as in China. And yet in the space of eight years, we've gone from zero, zero unicorns to 15, and we'll probably see many more over the next five years. Again, we are so early in Southeast Asia's developmental cycle, and so much has happened that it makes me feel extremely optimistic over what will happen over the next 10, 20, 30 years. There's so much upside here, and it's just, it boggles my mind that people outside can't see that yet. Like, maybe it's because that you and I live here that we've seen transformation happening on the ground, like we witnessed it firsthand. It's hard to do that from overseas, but this just feels like such an amazing opportunistic time to do a startup or to invest in startups. Like I can think of no other better market than Southeast Asia right now. 
Well, that would not be to your surprise. Some of the biggest listeners to this podcast are actually people who run hedge funds in the US. And I get at least a meeting and a call every month to think about the region, right? I think this is where it's interesting for me to ask, how does a startup founder look at Southeast Asia market? There's a difference between advising a founder in Singapore or Jakarta to expand into the other market, right? Because Singapore is very developed. I would say if you look at maybe not Jakarta, but rest of the second tier cities in Indonesia, there's a different set of complexity. And I'm actually more interested in those complexities. What would be the first advice you give them? Sure. So it's interesting how, quote unquote, Southeast Asia as a market has evolved for startup founders. I mean, eight years ago, if you were to speak to Singaporean entrepreneurs, many of them would say, oh yeah, my market is Singapore and only Singapore. They were disabused of that relatively fast. I think you had a lot of smart capital coming in and say, your market is only 4.5 million people. Your actual market should be Southeast Asia. So I would say a good startup founder now looks at Southeast Asia as their market, not their local market. So this applies to, you know, if you're a Thai entrepreneur, if you're a Singaporean entrepreneur, your local market will be your first market, but your true market where the true growth is, where the true opportunity lies, is in dominating Southeast Asia as a whole. And so I think that's kind of a new development. I think Singaporean entrepreneurs, Singaporean funds were the first to instill that notion. And now I think that notion has been carried on to the other countries. So to answer your question, how should a startup founder look at Southeast Asia? I think they need to see it as the true addressable market for what they do not their local market. And in terms of advising a founder in Singapore or Jakarta on how to expand into new markets, two bits of advice. One, do your research. Like you need to understand precisely the city, the country, the user, the test case that makes sense for your startup. And you need to be precise in where and how you expand. So just do your research because it is going to be a hugely expensive endeavor to do that. And if that means that you are traveling there, if you are living there, if you are hiring a third-party consultant to do that research, I know several companies, including some of our own portfolio companies that actually hired a third party to do a market sizing, to actually do research on three or four different potential markets and say, all right, this is the best market for you to expand to as your second market. So really take the time to research what market you should expand into. And then my next bit of advice would be, you have to hire essentially a mini you. Your GM or your general manager, your country manager of that country, they are not just going to be involved in the business. They're going to be representing the culture. They're going to be doing the first few hires. They're going to be finding the space. They're going to be involved in so many of the processes, so much of the operations that they may not be involved in once that office is fully decked out, fully up and running. So having that person be a really strong operator, somebody that you can trust because you're not going to be there to manage them, somebody that understands how to run a business, that's so important and it's so hard to find that. But if you can find that, that's what you need to expand into another market. Mm. My last question to you, and this is a major criticism, but it's pointed by many, is the lack of startup exits in the current ecosystem. How do you define startup exits and what the success in startup exits would mean for Southeast Asia? And if you have any examples, share them. Because I think this comment comes out a lot, but I think you are probably one of the more thoughtful people that actually have some idea of what exits really mean for the ecosystem. Sure. So in my mind, exits are validation. I hate to be the one to say this, 
when I say it, but you know, you have a lot of articles, you have a lot of press out there saying that, you know, Southeast Asia is great. Southeast Asia is amazing. And I, I do feel that way, but I don't think it's been fully validated yet because I don't think those exits have occurred in mass. I do think they will occur. I am super optimistic that they will, but until those exits occur, Southeast Asia is still very much an experiment. And so exits count as validation for the GPs. It counts as validation for the entrepreneurs. It most importantly counts as validation to the LPs, the limited partners that put money to the GPs and subsequently get a return if that fund does well. When the exits occur, those LPs say, all right, there's an opportunity here. I have cash in bank. I've given $1. I've gotten $3 back. I can commit more capital to this region. Once this additional inflection point occurs, or we reach this inflection point, or we reach this paradigm shift where the money invested in eight years ago has now been brought back at a three, four, five X return, many of those LPs will say, all right, this experiment is over. This experiment is successful. We can now commit much more resources to this region. You say that a lot of your listeners are like hedge funds in the States. We've spoken to many of those guys. We've spoken to many LPs in the States and their questions are pointed, but they're true. They're saying, yes, we see the opportunity, the demographic opportunity in Indonesia. We see the economic and political stability of Singapore and why that's important for a region like Southeast Asia. But where are the exits? And that's a good point. And so it's only when we can point to those exits that we can really say Southeast Asia is here to stay. You need to jump on this boat now. Otherwise, you will never see this opportunity again. Or you'll have to wait until Africa. You'll have to wait until South America because this opportunity is leaving now. So startup successes validates everyone. And that's why it's so important. We need that validation. And that's why we'll be seeing that over the next two or three years. And the reason why I say next two or three years is because the first vintage of, I would say a majority of funds in the region, their first vintage was around 2012, 2011. Not a majority of funds, but a fair number of institutional funds, their first vintage was 2010, 2011. The average life cycle of a fund, whether it's here, whether it's in the US, whether it's China, is 10 years for an early stage fund. So that means we're coming up on the tail end of those first cohorts. So that would be around 2020, 2021. So those funds should be generating a lot of positive returns right now. And that's what the region needs. So for active observers of Southeast Asia, for people that are interested in understanding how this ecosystem will evolve over the next 10 years, the next two years are really mission critical for the region. Wow. So we will just continue to monitor and probably I will have to get you back on another occasion to have this conversation again. I'd love to. Justin, many thanks for coming on the podcast. and. I really enjoyed the conversation because I think your responses for most of the questions are actually very thoughtful. And I think that requires a little bit more thinking as well on everybody's end. Just the first question I'm going to ask before I close, can you recommend both movie podcasts or something that made an impact to your work and personal life? Sure. So the one that I'm really excited about is a, it's a book called Trillion Dollar Coach by Bill Campbell. I'm not sure if you've ever read this, but he was a football coach turned executive coach of I think Steve Jobs of Eric Schmidt of Google, of I think more than a few companies in the States, which is why he's called a trillion dollar coach because the market cap of all the companies that he advised for and was a coach for is easily in aggregate over trillion dollars. It's, it's been helpful to me because it shows, 
it shows how to manage, it shows how to listen, it shows how to speak to and work with both colleagues and entrepreneurs. Like, I think if you've been doing this long enough, you understand how to draft the term sheet. You understand how to close a deal, how to look at an opportunity. I think that there's so much that still needs to be done on, all right, fine, you've gotten this entrepreneur, you've gotten this portfolio company, how do you work with this entrepreneur? How do you work with this portfolio company? What do you need to do to drive value to them? to drive value to your colleagues, to drive value to your GPs and LPs. This book is really about understanding that, like saying the right thing, doing the right thing that has been personally valuable to me and I think it would be valuable for your audience. So it's Trillion Dollar Coach by Bill Campbell. It's actually on Bill Campbell. Um, yeah, correct. By Eric Smith, Jonathan Rosen, and Ellen Eagle. Yeah, and I think that are authors of the book, How Google Works as well. And my last question to you, how do my audience find you? Oh, they can always email me. So justin at golengate.vc, that's the easiest way. If, you know, if the email is addressed to me and it, like it calls me out, say, hey, Justin, I will read it and I will respond to it. Okay. You can Google me at Burden Leung. This show is co-produced by Caroline and myself. You can find us on probably any platform now from iTunes, Spotify, all the way to Luminary, Himalaya, and Stitcher. So you can also drop us your comments, tweet to me, or you can come to our Telegram channel. That's where I review who my new guests are actually going to be coming up. So if you want to know the latest and the earliest, then you should join our Telegram channel. So once again, Justin, many thanks for coming on the show. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Cheers. So did I. Thanks so much.